when I got on social media and, and we're going to go way back, um, I, I always tell people AOL chat rooms was the first social media for me. Um, and I was 18. Feminisa Jones is a writer, a social worker, an activist, and a little bit of a Twitter celebrity. But when she first got online, as she put it way back, she did it for the same reasons that a lot of us did. I did it for the social aspect. Being online gave me access to people I would have never you know, encountered otherwise. So I loved that part. And as a writer, um, you know, when I started blogging, I was able to build community with other writers. And as every new social media platform came about, you know, kind of hopped on that. As I transitioned from the social aspect, I started realizing that with all these people I'm connecting with, this could be a valuable tool for the work that I do as, as a social worker, as an activist. I can definitely remember the days when the internet seemed brand new and social media was just full of possibility. But as social media got more mature and new platforms like Facebook and Twitter and other things came along, all of a sudden we had a counter to tell us how many followers we had or how many likes we got on Instagram. But then over time, a lot of us that got a big platform or who had a lot of followers realized that that visibility came with a lot of harassment, a lot of abuse, and sometimes even violence. I think around 2014 though, when I started doing activism around street harassment and police brutality, that the it became overwhelming. Um, it started really getting ugly. People were not just like, I disagree or I don't like this. They were like, we hate what you're saying and you need to be silenced and you need to be removed and you should die and you should be raped. You know, all these kinds of things. It's caused me to shift how I engage online. When your avatar is clearly that of a black woman, I am a large black woman, I am an outspoken black woman, you know that you will be targeted. And so you have to find coping mechanisms because the only other option is to totally leave. You know, and it's like, I can't do that because my career relies on me having a social media presence. Feminista's experience is not unique. People in marginalized communities are often the targets of the most violent attacks online. It's something that the big platforms are well aware of, but are doing very little to stop. So I reached out to Amnesty International to talk about their recent report on what makes Twitter such a toxic place, especially for women. I talked to Tara DeMant. She leads Amnesty's Gender, Sexuality, and Identity program. We talked about the research that went into the report and why online harassment is actually a human rights issue. Tara, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, one of the things that was a sort of milestone for me in getting a deeper view into your work was a report that came out last year mm -hmm. specifically focused on Twitter. Can you talk a little bit about what that report was? Yeah. So Amnesty International has been investigating the human rights implications of violence and abuse against women on Twitter. And as part of that research, we published an investigation last year, like you said, called Toxic Twitter, in which we found that Twitter is failing to respect the human rights of women who've been targets of violence and abuse on its platform. And this is despite repeated promises by Twitter to tackle violence and abuse on their platform. But women are still regularly logging onto Twitter and finding death threats, rape threats, racist or homophobic slurs littering their feed. Um, and, and that hasn't changed. Social media has become such a critical platform for us to express ourselves, whether it's personally or politically or professionally, but it's not a safe space for women. And women are, are targeted specifically for expressing their views. 
And online violence and abuse denies women the right to express themselves equally freely and without fear. So our reporting looked at, we interviewed 87 women um, and gender non-binary folks. We talked with organizations um, working on the ground on these issues. We talked um, with Twitter itself. And we also conducted uh, polling in the U.S. and the U.K. in this report, as well as a uh, an online project in which 6,500 volunteers went on looking at thousands, hundreds of thousands of tweets and categorizing them. Um, the work that Twitter is saying it's it's doing, right, that it's supposed to be doing but isn't. Um, so we had a sort of multi-level approach to how, how we looked at this data. Um, and at the end, unfortunately, you know, really what we found is Twitter is failing. It's failing not only in its human rights responsibilities, but it's failing its users, particularly women. So I want to run through a couple of the, I think, reflexive uh, objections or responses that we tend to get in these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I want to get them out of the way. Sure. There's a defensiveness that that often happens, and and the first is, you know, why don't you just lock off, log off? Why don't you just block them? Why don't you just turn it off? And and you know, my my sort of impression of that is like, well, yeah, but that's denying yourself the opportunity to participate and necessary conversations or get access to necessary information. Like what, what has been your perspective in doing this work on the, you know, just ignore it, it'll go away or just don't look at it. Sure. You know, I, I think about the way that, that thinking about online violence and abuse against women really parallels actually movements in the U.S. around domestic abuse or in, uh, domestic violence or intimate partner violence, where, you know, for a long time it was seen as a private issue. Um, it's something that should be worked out between two people. It doesn't involve the state, right? Or also, um, you know, just ignore it or try and let it go away. Or then particularly thinking about psychological violence, which I think is, is something that can be really difficult for people to understand. Like, it's just online, as though online isn't a real space, and also one that's like really integral with our, our everyday lives. So I think there's multiple hurdles, one being that it's, it is, quote unquote, just online, and also that it involves psychological violence. And psychological violence and abuse is real and has real impact on people and is a very clearly delineated human rights abuse, but also, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and things that that directly impact the the lived experience of survivors. And that's that's happening with psychological abuse online because to get to that second part, the online space is real. You know, there's often the IRL versus online, but like real life is online. Like we are deeply connected and we use online spaces in every facet of our life. So Twitter is an essential means of communication for people. And so to say like, we'll just turn it off is, is somewhat like telling a, a survivor, like just don't ever answer your door in case it's someone you're concerned about or afraid of, or just don't ever go outside or just don't ever use your phone. It's like, sure, you could do that, but you then, you can't participate in daily life in a way that you need to and and are entitled to. You know, another concern we get is like, well, what about free speech? And it's like, you know, we are concerned about free speech. That's exactly why one of the reasons we're addressing this is because people are self-censoring. They're not willing to to go through the type of abuse that's happening to them. So they're taking themselves offline. One of the things we found is that, well, you know, certainly everyone has a right to live free from violence, including online violence and psychological violence, and that online violence and harassment affects men too, but that there's a disproportionate impact and and a really a really focused impact on women, often because they are women. Um, But, you know, what we also found is then that that, of course, that wasn't equally true across all identities of womanhood, right? So for queer, non-binary women, trans women, it was much, there was much more vitriol. It was much more violent. Um, For black women in the United States, there were so many more attacks for 
black women, and they were they, the vitriol was so much higher, um, and the consequences could be so much higher, right? And so partly this people are going after people specifically because of their marginalized identity. If people go after uh, you know a reproductive rights blogger from St. Louis, this per- who is who is who has a paid job and then works on reproductive justice. You know, what resources, what recourse does that ha- person have? And it's a way to silence those voices. And it's explicitly done like that, right? And I think I think the other thing that's important is, like, what are we actually talking about? And the types of violations that we documented and that we're seeing are first direct and indirect threats of physical or sexual violence. Um, and, and really, you know, particularly at women, like hypersexualized violence, rape threats with specific dates and times and their address posted, right? But also the violations of privacy, right? The the posting of sexual or private images that either an intimate partner has or had or somehow someone else got um, or doxing, putting someone's details online, which can have severe implications on your credit if your social security number or your oh, credit yeah, card goes so. up. But if your address goes up and some and you're saying things that you know people don't like, if you're saying something about social justice or whatever it is, whether whether I agree with it or not, that you know people don't like and people are threatening to kill you. You know, one of the people we talked to said that she was just resigned to potentially dying for her work as a, she was a reproductive rights advocate because she said, you know, you get 200 death threats and it only takes one to actually show up and follow through. Um, And that type of psychological burden and violence, none the least of which the threat of physical violence and death, you know, these are, they're human rights abuses to be very clear. And they're also, there's something that, that Twitter says it's, is against its own rules. So it's already in a space that Twitter's supposed to be moderating this. Twitter itself is like, yeah, no, that those are bad. <laughs> we're not we're not here for that. But then isn't really following through with that. So there, you know, all human rights abuses are certainly unnecessary, but there is, you know, these are unnecessary trauma and, and abuses that people are going through because Twitter has not done enough and, and continues to fail in, in its responsibilities. You know, one of the things you'd mentioned is uh, in particular like black women having more consequences or more serious attacks. Um, and, that, and there are other vectors of identity mm-hmm. like LGBTQI identity that also can sort of exacerbate the seriousness of attacks. What are some of the ways that that, that manifests that are not obvious to people who sort of, you know, might see this as, you know, uh, attacks are evenly spread? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing is that, you know, it, it is important to note that online abuse cuts across Every category mm-hmm. that, that we've yeah, been right. able to talk about and across political spectrum, right, that mm-hmm. politicians and journalists face similar levels of abuse on on both liberal and conservative spectrums. But that, you know, when we're talking about the type of abuse that gets flagged and taken seriously, that's a lot of who's listening and who thinks who has certain perspectives, whether they're intentional or unintentional blind spots. And I think you've really I'm really glad that that you noted this, right, which is one of the things we're really concerned about is this idea that, you know, don't worry, we'll solve it. We'll put an algorithm out there and somehow this (laughs) algorithm will find all the hate speak as though like people don't know how to hate speak without actually writing out the n-word right that that people don't right. know like oh, so yeah. sure a bot can find that and please do that's <laughs> horrific violence and like if that if that's your only approach you're not listening to people of color who are telling you what that looks like what those types of attack look like what what the sort of like dog whistling sounds like right. to them right? well and who gets to be the authority on defining what an attack is Absolutely. right is, is it the attackers or the victims and i say this all the time we're like we're south asian and there are for the most part not designated slurs right. or our identity. That doesn't mean I don't know when a white supremacist is right. attacking us. You know right. I mean? like, it's like, come on, I, I, I can, I'm actually pretty authoritative. Yeah, and then who's on the other end, right? 
Yeah, who's on the other end then deciding whether or not that account needs to come down or that tweet needs to be deleted? And that's one of the things that we're still con- concerned about. You know, Twitter's made a number of changes and, and addressed some of these issues. But, you know, one, the, the disaggregated data as to, like, what accounts are, you know, what, what things they are finding and in violation of policy and why and under which categories are they. Is it religious hate speak or racial hate speak or violation of, you know, attacks, blah, blah, blah. But also then who, like, are what is the cultural sensitivity training and, and the real cultural context? Because if you have someone sitting in, you know, Simi Valley, um, which I, I, I doubt is where their call centers are. But if you have if you have someone sitting in Simi Valley trying to sort through a bunch of tweets in South Africa, like that person does not necessarily have the training that they need to understand actually what attacks look like for certain communities, right? right. Particularly, there's a cultural fluency. There's a cultural fluency. There's also a linguistic fluency to talk about mm-hmm. too, which is like in different, like how is Twitter addressing, you know, oh, twi- gosh, twi- yeah. Twitter in different languages. But that cultural fluency is really important. And and that in on a global context is really critical. But, but even just within the U.S., let's say, right? Just within the U.S., like, you know, if your boardroom lacks racial, ethnic, sexual diversity, gender diversity, like you are going to be seeing things through your lens and you're not going to be seeing things through the lived experience of impacted people. And that's true across companies. It's true across nonprofit organizations. Like if you're if you're decision makers, if the people who are trying to do good by your product, whatever that might be, you know, really all come from a certain perspective, like that is perspective that's going to be privileged. And it's not necessarily then the group of people who are most impacted when your product or your company fails to meet its responsibilities to protect human rights of your users or or the people who are involved in your service. These questions you're raising are actually the most important questions in certainly in the tech world, but, you know, in the world overall in a lot of ways, because these are the ones that we have the least answers Mm -hmm. to. I think I think every other domain of human rights are you know, for all of the challenges and the and some of the egregious wrongs that happen, there are things we know, we understand. We've discussed before, and, and, at least. Yeah, 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 we've had a conversation of, and even in some cases we've had successes yeah. and, and advances happen. And this is a space that is new, that we, we haven't encountered before. And we don't know what our systemic solutions or the ways to address it are going to be. We don't know what, what yeah. you know, what winning and protecting people looks like. Yes. But I hear you know, uh, an optimistic note to your framing that, that you think there are some some real substantive ways yeah, that I think so. flagging these issues could have an impact. Absolutely. I mean, I think for a number of reasons, right? One, because technology is so constantly changing that that then it can be hard to anticipate the things we didn't think we'd see. It's, but, but again, I would say that like at, at the root of this, at the root of problems that we see with Twitter, at the root of the, the issues we see in technology and human rights are those same questions of those, you know, olderly considered human rights or that we might have thought we sort of knew better because we'd talked about or seen before. Um, so it, mm-hmm. it, at, at their root, they are the same. But, but I do think that technology, you know, can offer us ways to think creatively about how we can be champions for human rights. Like, technology is itself not the problem, right? Human rights abuses are the problem, and the lack of accountability is the problem. And, you know, in Twitter's case, the lack of transparency is the problem. It is not technology with a capital T that is the problem. (laughs) It's the same problem we have with other human rights abusers. It's the same, you know, it's the same issues we have across the board. So, but instead, like, technology offers us, you know, Things we can only dream of. What could be the next way to think creatively about solving human rights crises? Well, I think with that reminder of this being an opportunity for us to look out for one another and to protect the most vulnerable, to 
um, well, connect with the promise that got us all excited about technology in the first place. Um, I think that is a as it's a great mandate for us to follow, and it's also something that we can see as a a charge, our responsibility. So, Tara, thank you so much for giving us that perspective on not just Twitter but technology overall how we can make sure that it is something that uh, supports our human rights and protects our ability to connect with one another. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I can't wait to see what human rights champions that come out of technology right in the future. So I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Next up, we talk to a woman who's been at the forefront of designing social networks for years, Gina Bianchini. Gina's the CEO of Mighty Networks. That's a platform dedicated to helping regular people make their own social networks and supporting them and creating these communities where they gather together like-minded people. Long before she started Mighty Networks, Gina was the co-founder of an early 2000s social platform called Ning. It was sort of the prototype of some of these ideas where you could create your own corner of the internet and build your own social network. But these days she's convinced that we can take those ideas and modernize them for the internet and the world of social media that exists today. But before we jump into all of that, Gina, I want to get a little bit of your history. Can you talk about this work you've been doing for years in imagining how the internet and social media could be a lot different and a lot healthier? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So in 2004, I I founded a company and a platform with a friend of mine who our whole goal was to basically say in the same way that websites were these really unique programmable you know things that people could create their own unique experiences with the same thing would be true for social networks and social applications and we wanted to build i mean very actually similar to what you have created that is just super special with with glitch one of the things that I think is interesting, and I'm sure you you feel uh, perhaps similar, which is, you know, no one woke up one day and like walked to the top of a mountain and had God talk to them to say, the only way that social media should exist in the world is as a news feed whizzing by you, <laughs> supported by targeted and increasingly targeted ads, such that you know, the the things that the algorithm should support are those that represent the most intense emotion. God right. didn't decree this. This happened for a variety of different reasons and with a variety of different questions. And so that's where my energy comes from, which is like, there's no decree that says that social media needs to work the way it does. Each right. and every one of us has the ability to say, you know what? I actually want to use communities or I want to use the ability to have connected technology to bring people together around a transformation that I had in my own life and that I now believe that I can bring to other people. So the way Mighty Networks works, I'm a creator and I want to convene a community and you know, I become a user of the platform, I become a customer of the platform and I, and I bring everybody in. What do you do if that person who created that new community has made a, a harmful community that is, you know, that's hateful or that's attacking people. Like, how do you, how do you detect that? How do you respond? How do you manage that? Yeah, I, it's very simple. We have an acceptable use policy. And if you break the acceptable use policy, we shut you down. What's really <laughs> nice. <laughs> so It sounds so straightforward. 
what's really nice is that because these are all individual networks, they, they tend to not leak into other places. And that's really the challenge with social media, the way it's set up, is that it, there is no friction. And in fact, actually, many of the harmful groups are organizing not just for their own radicalization, but they're organizing so that they can turn around and go into social media and create controversy, disruption, pain, heartache, harassment, abuse. And so the good news is if we move more and more people into private communities around good things, it becomes harder and harder for those you know, bad communities to have the impact on the rest of us that today they can have very easily because of the lack of friction in social media. But, you know, it's, I, I think many of the problems that we've run into in social media has come from the fact that we didn't shut down abusive people, no matter who they are. The ways that social media platforms are contorting themselves into supporting and enabling abusive people I think is the problem, not the technology itself in and of itself. If we just put a line in the sand and say, hey, if you are out there to millions of people um, targeting a specific citizen that you believe has done you wrong, and we are not shutting that down, that's created, I would argue, 80% of the problems in social media today. Mm -hmm. If you enable those bad actors, everybody else feels like it's it's a safe place for them to commit the same kind of harm. And justify it with free speech or justify it in all of these ways that says that we're gonna shut some people down for our terms of service or acceptable use policy, but we're gonna allow other people to do it. That's where you just run into a whole host of problems. The conversation is not, you're hiring thousands of remote community moderators to dredge through the worst things on the internet and suffer for harms on the platform. And it's not, I'm, you know, I'm sure you have community moderation of those things, but it sounds to me like the design and the intent of what you've done has obviated the need for a lot of the worst, a lot of most painful work. Like you still have to do the hard work, but it, it's not fundamentally cleaning up a mess. Correct. How much of that is, like how much of that is, you, you got lucky in the design, but how much do you think of that is attributable to, to planning ahead? There, I would almost say that we planned ahead to a degree that has limited our mm -hmm. growth. Mm -hmm. You know, we did not choose to be the fastest growing platform on the planet, you know, which, which has its blessings and its curses. Yeah. A good rule of thumb is as long as you have private communities with photos and videos that can be shared and that you offer the ability to have those for free, you are going to attract some bad stuff. Yeah. But what's different about our platform is is that there isn't any central feed. You know, there's no central account. You know, each Mighty Network has its own its own login. And so your incentives are different. You're not just trying to push everybody to get addicted to one big feed. Exactly. And actually, the thing the thing that 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 we consistently see is, you know, people have uh, you know, much smarter than me have come to us regularly and they've been like why don't you guys have like a robust discovery engine and a central feed and like <laughs> basically saying we're stupid because mm -hmm. we don't have discovery. Well, guess what? Guess who are the main people who show up to a discovery function? Tends to be bad people. Mm. 
they want to game it. They want to rig it. They want to be the, the, the trending community or whatever. They're like, they're not invested in the community. Like the last time we checked, people don't tend to do retreats or have seminars in the middle of Times Square. With, like, right. like that's not the point. A distraction-filled environment is not where we find our best selves. Right. So one of my favorite examples, and, and just indulge me for a second. Please. We have a community of of yoga enthusiasts that that have been you know convened by a YouTube star called Yoga with Adrian and she has a phenomenal story where they started experimenting with a mighty network you know 2 3 years ago and they had 25,000 people in a Facebook group and what they found and and I love Sarah's language on this she's like when they were coming to our Facebook group they were coming in hot mm. And specifically, the kind of tenor of the conversation, you know, it, 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 was, it was more aggressive. It was, and, and by the way, this is for people that signed up for yoga. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, but it's such an emotionally heightened environment. Correct. And they're surrounded by headlines that are trying to, you know, enrage them. No matter how them. zen you are, like if you just came from a, a you know, a six point font fight in the comment sections over like a Donald Trump article and now you want to interact in 1.3 seconds, which is what Facebook counts as a view in your yoga group, you're showing up in your yoga group like not in the, not your best self. You're heated. You're heated. So, you know, fast forward as, as they started to post the same kinds of things in, a, in their mighty network, find what feels good. Um, they were seeing a totally different kind of conversation. And I'd love to take credit for it and say that like it's because of the way that, you know, we've architected and designed a mighty <laughs> network and all this stuff. Sure, but that helps. It helps, but I would also just argue that like fundamentally if you have two tin cans and a piece of string and you can but you have focus and you have context and you have an intention to connect with other people around the thing that is the, you know, important to you at that point in your life, you are going to have a different community experience. But some of this is also about architecting something that doesn't have to rely on hypergrowth. Like you don't have to have a billion users tomorrow for this to work. No. And, and you can still take enough time to make sure the communities are healthy and that you're sort of scaling in a way that is responsible. Well, and, and I'll, 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 frame that in a slightly different way. Creators, our customers, don't mm. need to have millions of people. So it sounds to me like you still believe, right? Like what I hear here is uh, complete confidence that people are going to respond as they continue to respond as they have been, that this model is going to grow. And I'm curious, do you think we find our way back to an internet or forward to an internet where a lot of people have an experience that they feel they can trust. I have worked on this particular corner of the internet, branded specialized social networks led by creators that are ad free, that are, you know, mobile first for like 15 years. And here's what I know to be true going into 2020. We've just grown our platform in one year, like 250%. And these are people who are paying us money to be able to run their own 
community, online courses, uh, mastermind groups, you name it. 250% in one year. And the beautiful thing about it is they all basically are saying the same thing. I wanna bring my people together. I want them to have results and transformation. I understand that they need to be able to focus and, and, I, and I have an opportunity to create a space that is dedicated to this topic away from the noise and clutter and you know challenging trust dynamics of the larger platforms. And when you see that kind of growth, it mean, and you, you hear the same story over and over again, what we know as software developers, as, we, as systems thinkers, and, and architects is that when you when you hear the same story over and over again, you can create software that makes that specific use case easier and easier and easier. And so I enter 2020 energized, passionate, resilient, uh, and also completely dedicated to the things that I know to be true, uh, which is creator success is is a multifaceted, beautiful thing that requires us to create something amazing for end users, uh, amazing for the creator, help them make more money so they can invest more money in their communities. Uh, and it is it is the puzzle I want to work on. It's a really inspiring note to sort of bring things to close on. I mean, I am personally very grateful uh, that you have never given up and, you know, to sort of carry the torch and carry the the hope of that forward, uh, as we said, and when it wasn't in favor, when it wasn't in fashion, and when it was just a few diehard believers, uh, because it sounds like you really are making it happen in a way that so many of us are still optimistic about. Um, I, I think that's uh, it's inspiring, and I'm grateful for it. And uh, Gina, thank you for joining us on Function. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Function is produced by Bridget Armstrong. Our producer at Glitch is Keisha TK Dutes. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Brandon McFarland, and a huge thanks to everybody on our team at Glitch. You can find me on Twitter at Anil Dash, and you can also follow the show itself on Twitter at Podcast Function. Please remember to subscribe to Function wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you should check out our new home, Glimmer which is where all the media things at Glitch live. That's glitch.com slash Glimmer. And Glimmer is where Function lives now and where you will find full text transcripts for every single episode. We even have apps and other things you can check out to help you learn about all the topics we discussed on Function. So if you've missed any episodes over the last two seasons, check us out at glitch.com slash Glimmer. <laughs>